You've done the hard work. And now it is my job to entertain you. <laughs> Setting myself up. All right, here we go. Um, I'm going to be giving a talk tonight on letting go and uh, what different, a different perspective on letting go. Um, generally, when in life, when we let go of something that's dominating our thoughts, that's, because, that's causing obsession or struggle, uh, there's an element of... of um, kind of admitting defeat mixed with a sense of being beaten down. Um, a feeling of uh, uh, just throwing one hands up and resigning. And uh, of course very often in life that's the case with addictions and other kinds of uh, topics and struggles that hook the mind and create obsessive uh, thought. Generally, we just get to a place where we just give up. And uh, there's also an element to it sometimes of um, not only defeatism, but just completely turning away from it entirely. And it being letting go has uh, can feel like. Uh, the sad end result of last resort. So, uh, generally, um, let's backtrack and talk about how these obsessions often start. Um, we all have a degree of inner talk, inner narrative, that ch chatting mind that somewhat just creates a narrative to our lives, a little story telling us what's going on. When they studied infants, they first started back in the 1930s. Actually, uh, it was a Russian uh, 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 child psychologist who first studied the beginning of inner talk. And what he determined is that it's basically, uh, in infancy, the child is talked to by its parents, told constantly what to do, what not to do, uh, you know, just basically language is a tool of regulation. You can't do this, you can't eat that cookie, you can't cross the road, you can have a bite to eat if you want. And so children, when they first start talking to themselves, are simply imitating the voice of their parents, regulating their behavior. And it becomes a, a way that we establish a sense of identity, a sense of justifying and explaining everything we do. And so if all things work out nicely, the inner thought doesn't become too dominating. It doesn't get in the way from uh, relaxing and focusing on uh, things we enjoy and projects that we engage in. The problem, of course, is that if we're caught up in inner chatter, inner narration, it tends to distract our awareness. It tends to, uh, there's wonderful studies I read by um, 
the University of Southern California and UCLA about uh, what happens when we're caught up in thought and how little awareness we bring to the actual tasks at hand. The mind, when it's in a state of flow, has, uh, when it's the most optimally functioning, has very little inner chatter, which is not to say that it doesn't have any, but uh, it's, it's somewhat sparse. Of course, what happens in life is um, whenever any bumps in the road, any disturbances, any setbacks, uh, frustrations, disappointments, people doing things we don't like, fears about losing what we have, whenever these disturbances arise, what happens is uh, the inner talk morphs from uh, self-regulating to a more intrusive and invasive and more uh, volitional kind of thought. Generally takes on two kinds. When something disturbing has arisen in life, we can fall into what's known as pathological thought. Pathological thought is simply thought that's driven by emotion. It's survival-based, it's extreme, it feels, it exaggerates external situations and it, it feels the presence of fear, or agitation or anger or disturbance emotionally in the body and it feels the combination of two are unbearable. When, for example, uh, we feel hurt or insulted by someone, or when we feel someone is rejecting us, not caring about us, uh, threatening to abandon us, there's a, a feeling of both um, vulnerability and also a great sense of just panic that arises in the body that lifts up, starting in the stomach all the way up to the throat. And it can be, it creates this inner sense of just, I can't be with this. And on top of it, then we also have all this fixation on the event. So it creates this untenable uh, um, stress and tension. We're physically uncomfortable, we're mentally uncomfortable. Oh no, I can't believe this person said that. How dare they? Or what's going to happen to me? Uh, mixed with just tension. And what happens with pathological thought is we tend to be driven into habitually ingrained reactive survival based, survival at all cost actions. Generally, fight or flight. We either try to get rid of the situation or avoid it. We try to flee, or we try to, or we shout, stomp about. Very often the strategies are ingrained in childhood, and they arise without any uh, long-term awareness of the results that might arise. Pathological thought doesn't have any awareness that there's any alternative. When we're caught up in emotion, the idea that we can relax, step back, breathe, not react, not 
we don't need to act is the last thing on our mind. We feel very, very uh, incapable of settling because we're not, it's not only out there. The stress is internal. We've built up this this physical armor type sense of uh, uh, emotional fear and vulnerability. The second type that arises as an alternative to pathological thought is what's uh, known as deliberative or problem-solving thought, which loves to believe it's far superior to emotional pathological thought. When we're calm or not caught up in the need to immediately act, we tend to feel pretty superior. And we get caught up in the deliberative playing out of problems and then possible solutions and then the drawback to each solution that we come back, we come up with. Now this sounds very attractive, but there's a a number of problems with deliberative uh, problem-solving thoughts. The first is that deliberation is not self-evaluating. It doesn't know when to stop. Deliberative problem-solving also keeps going. It generally gets locked into a stalemate or an impasse because no matter what reasonable solution people come up with, the mind will always find a problem with it. It's a little bit like the news. I don't know if you ever, like, in any other country, the news is sort of, if there's a rational idea, they just present the idea. They don't find some fringe lunatic to debate it. (laughs) In the States, though, you have a very rational idea, and they'll still find a fascist somewhere who will pop up and come up with a reason why it shouldn't happen. It doesn't matter whether it's universal health care. There was some bill a while back in Congress that simply wanted to acknowledge that we had, we had caused genocide to the Native American population, which unquestionably we did. We massacred tens of millions of people. There's no controversy about it, but they found some guy that (laughs) popped up there and just, no, God wanted us to be in this country. It's, you know, it's our divine right. And they presented it as if this argument has just as much validity as what actually happened. And that's the way the deliberative mind works. You can... You can, you know, have a horrible, horrible job. And your mind might say, this is a horrible, horrible job. But there'll be a lunatic voice in the mind that will pop up and say, I'll never find another job. <laughs> and be, and for everybody who's stuck in a miserable relationship, whether with a partner who doesn't care, who's not present, not emotionally available, there is a little inner voice there saying, but I'll never find anyone else if I take care of myself. And if you do find a good relationship, God forbid, because then that voice will show up in a different wig. It's all going to be taken away, I know. (laughs) 
But this is even worse than when I was alone. <laughs> oh, shit. So, um, so anyway, it, it doesn't stop. It gets trapped in imp- impasses. It's looking for a solution for which there's absolutely no foreseeable drawback. And the mind can always foresee a drawback. That's the problem. No matter what, how you end the court cases in the mind, the next day it will always be appealed. <laughs> yes, I knew I was going to quit my job, but I've got fresh information showing that I'll never find another job ever again. So I can't do it. <laughs> so um, it doesn't really work. In general, all reactivity boils down to basically, the Buddha stated, three types. Whether it's deliberative or whether it's uh, pathological, our thoughts tend to boil down to A, the craving mind, wanting something to fix, to solve, to lift us out, to pull us away. Yes, if only I had that eye gadget, I would never suffer again. (laughs) You know, let me have this. If I had the perfect apartment, the perfect uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, roommate, not roommate, if you know, whatever. And then the flip side of that, which is simply the, the exact same movement of the mind, is simply, if I only got rid of something, everything would be terrific. Now, the great thing about going on retreat, as anyone will tell you, maybe it's not the great thing, but it's one of the amusing things about going on retreat, is we get very much caught up in this craving or averse mind and we really believe oh if only this if only I had a better place to live if only I didn't have this job if only I was in the perfect circumstances then I wouldn't be obsessive and 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 all wound up I could really relax and then what we do on a retreat is we drop you into the most beautiful idyllic place you could possibly (laughs) imagine and guess what happens Three days into it, you're like, ah! Oh my fucking God! Turn it off! Where's the off button of the brain? So it turns out that changing everything around us doesn't stop the reactive mind. I have literally been on retreats where I thought I was going to strangle the person next to me if they didn't breathe differently than they did. <laughs> so it's not, it's not about changing the world around us. Of course, the Buddha said that there are inevitable situations in life that arise that cause suffering, but the bulk, I mean, the, those things are, of course, old, aging, sickness, death. We all know separation. We all will experience abandonment, frustrations, not getting what we want, being separated from what we love, 
being pushed up against what we don't love. The Buddha said all these things are inevitable, they're going to happen, and that the real suffering from those comes from rather than opening to life as it is, we try to resist. We try to figure it out. We try to make it go away. We try to find a way to avoid experiencing what everybody else has got to suffer through or sit through, I should say. The third, by the way, kind of mind, I said that there was uh, the, there was the uh, craving and the averse mind. The third is the it's all about me mind. The mind that takes everything personally and gets caught up in why is this happening to me? Why, why, why? And that's a form of suffering in itself. So the question now becomes, okay, how do we let go when something is snagged and hooked us? When uh, a fear or a disturbance, a setback arises? One of the Buddhist strategies, and there are many, and the one I'm going to talk about tonight, is basically cultivating a spacious mind where we don't avoid or push away or resist uh, a disturbance or something difficult. Rather, we create a much wider awareness for the mind so that the challenges we face become much less all-consuming. The Buddha used the analogy of a body, a body of water. I love that sutta where he talks about if you put a teaspoon of salt into this glass of water, it becomes undrinkable, but a teaspoon of salt in a reservoir doesn't affect the taste at all. The more spacious the mind is, the more we can hold and be with um, challenges, unresolved situations without it consuming us, without it taking over awareness. The narrative mind that turns into deliberation or endless figuring out, problem solving, fix it, is a very small container. It's unaware of the body. It's unaware of sounds. It's unaware of contact sensations. It's unaware of the space that we feel around the body. It's a very contracted, compact, little, tiny space. And so the first way to detach somewhat from a problem or a topic is rather than arguing with it or fixing it, is simply opening awareness. The most available tool is sounds, frankly. Sometimes if we're really stressed out and tight and uh, worked up, it's difficult to go into the body. The body can feel uncomfortable. So I often recommend first just when there's something that's hooked us, that we feel obsessed, just opening the mind into the space around the, the sounds that you know, are around us, I should say. Feeling the contact, 
feeling how we relate to just the simple space that surrounds us. Are we soft? Are we... Do we feel armored, intense? Can we relax the external muscles? Then, what we do is we can welcome whatever topic is there. Just say, hi, I know you're there. If you haven't written it out, by the way, before, it's helpful to do that, simply because sometimes simply writing out a fear or an obsessive thought can give us permission to put it down for a while. Deliberative thought really doesn't like being put down. It only feel it only gives us permission to allow it to be a little detached from us if sometimes if we simply write it out. So if you haven't done that, it's really helpful to simply write out whatever the fear or the concern is. And then just allow it to be there. I often give it a name. Not a dismissive, punitive name. I've heard some people, some people like when they, when they have obsessive thinking, they go, their, their practice is thinking, 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 which is horrible. I mean, <laughs> I mean that's, that creates even more stress than the original problem itself. Uh, I simply think of somebody that I cared about, but who was tended to be a worry wart, and I'll just say, you know, hi, Mom. It's good, you know, it's, <laughs> it's good to know you're still up there, you know. It's okay. You know, you can have a comfortable seat. And then we go into the body, and we really create a lot of space around whatever is tight. If there's fear or obsession or if we've been hooked by something, there'll be this, this tension, stomach, hollow chest, locked jaw, tight throat, shoulders up like this. It's up to each of us to find our own and just to give it space to arise and play out. What we're doing is by going into the body, by allowing the topic that's hooked us to be there, by keeping the mind spacious with thought, with sounds and with body contact sensations, with a feeling of the space around the body, is we're greatly creating a room around the issue. The narrative mind really doesn't like to do this. It really wants to come in and grab us and pull us back into the, the topic and rejoin the debate about what we should do. The narrative mind doesn't ever feel safe. Because it's so com contracted and small and very tight and unaware of the body and unaware of anything else, the narrative mind is the classical... Um, it's it's you and me against the world. Another problem with uh, deliberative thought is that it tends to play into this old cliche that if we just think long and hard enough about a problem, that that's the way solutions come up. And it's really a lar it's largely in fault of the way that we're taught. 
in schools, which is basically, we're taught this completely phony history that great ideas come about by some lone inventor, generally male, of course, in a laboratory who figured it all out. And when you actually study the history of breakthroughs, it's actually based not on men, it's based on an entire population of people working at a problem and imitating and copying each other incremental solutions where we observe what other people do, we learn from them, and that's how horizontal learning comes and how great breakthroughs happen. They don't happen with a single individual sitting alone and figuring it out. They come about when people are open, aware, looking and observing and taking in what people around them are doing. It's never an individual alone. It's always based upon people in observance of other people. So this idea that we have to figure out the solutions on our own sets us up for this really false belief. If you look at, I think, uh, the history of philosophy, most of the ideas that people come up with in isolation don't really last. They're not really successful. So another part of this process is once we've opened to what's around us, then we begin to open to what's available to us relationally. We can observe and take in how wise practitioners, wise people in our lives deal with challenges. We can begin to share and open not the problem itself, but the emotional feeling that resides beneath the problem, which is often what's really hooked us to begin with. For example, if we're really frightened about or concerned about um, uh, an unforeseen possibility of financial insecurity, it often stems from what's beneath just a general sense of we've never been taken care of, we've never really fully felt safe, that we've only feel secure when we're hypervigilant and caught up in thoughts and really worked up and constantly on guard. And when we share about the feelings that are beneath an experience, generally we begin to hear, just in talking about it in relation to another person, we begin to hear what's happening beneath it. Unfortunately, very often it requires a relational practice before we become aware of that underlying energy. Sometimes if we're lucky, simply opening into the body and feeling what's physically, somatically beneath uh, an obsession will do that for us. But very often it requires talking about it. In my experience, when I've been hooked by uh, anger and resentment, really when I talk about it is when I get a, is when I get that sense that it's not about me. 
that this is a universal experience. And when I no longer feel that someone's uh, actions are aimed at me, that everybody experiences the slights and insults and uh, the unfortunate experiences that we go through with other people, then I take it less as a threat. The more I take things as about me, the more alone, vulnerable, threatened I feel. But, for example, not only with anger, when I fear losing something, a relationship, a friendship, a, a, a position or something in life, the more I hear other people express their own fears, the less I relate to this feeling as being about me. The more I experience fear as an experience that arises in life to everyone, the less I take it as something I, I have to do something about. And this allows me to let it go. All of these practices, relational, creating a sense of space, create two very deep forms of wisdom. The first is that nothing is truly permanent. It's all shifting. It's all settling and then becoming unsettled. As one greatest Buddhist monk I studied with said, relations, uh, conditions come together, conditions fall apart. That's what's going on. And the need to figure out, protect ourselves, react, control, becomes far, far less powerful the more we simply settle back and observe and take in all that's happening around us fully presently. Another great piece of wisdom although it sounds pretty obvious, but I think it's somewhat important, is that if we're really worrying about something, nothing the fuck is going on right now. Nothing is. Because if there was something really threatening present, you wouldn't be just sitting there worrying about it. You'd be actually doing something. I was on the... Uh, Street and a car once jumped the curb, and I, I found that I practically flown into another city before I even thought about it. I literally ran two blocks before I became aware again. That's what happens when there's something really happening in the present moment. But when we open up to what's really happening around us, when we're worried, we find out that right here and right now, there's almost invariably nothing going on. And that's one of the great ways of letting go. It's just truly opening up into what's present. Where there's space. Eventually we'll find that a lot of the issues solve themselves. Or B, eventually when we open up enough to other people, we'll get a sense of empowerment and a sense of conviction in our solutions that 
will allow us to act without all the accompanying fear and debate that arises. So, I thank you for listening. I hope there was something in there worth uh, pondering. And uh, now it's time for uh, any questions at all about practice or any spiritual things. If you use this time to uh, leave, if you could um, uh, remember to uh, donate if that's possible so that we can pay the rent, that always uh, helps. So I thank you for listening. Hi. Thanks, Josh. Mm -hmm.